politics, sports, movies. You are listening to the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. Welcome to the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. My name is Frank, and I'm the host of the show. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking the show out. If you're a return listener, thanks for coming back and continuing to listen. The show is available on the following apps. Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and CastBox. If you listen to the show using one of these apps, please click subscribe, and this will allow you to receive notifications when new episodes are uploaded. You can also listen to episodes on the show's Facebook page, which can be found by searching for Let Me Bend Your Ear. Episodes are also available on the show's YouTube channel. Just search for Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. This podcast covers three different topics, politics, sports, and movies. Each episode is dedicated to one of these topics. You can also follow the show on social media. The handle for Twitter is at BendYourEarPod. This is also the handle for Instagram. If you want to email the show, the email is BendYourEarPodcast at gmail.com. If you're not using a podcasting app to listen to the show, you can always get episodes directly from the website, which is located at www.letmebendyourear.com. I think it's very important in this political season to listen to differing viewpoints on the issues of the day. And based on that, I'm happy to present this interview I completed with independent presidential candidate Sean Howard, who's running for the highest office in the land in this current cycle. Now, I'm not naive. I understand that we have the Democratic candidate, the Republican candidate, and a lot of states you'll see a uh, Libertarian, excuse me, and a Green Party candidate on the ballot as well. Uh, Sean Howard is a writing candidate in 25 states and has an uphill battle, obviously, to gain any kind of traction where people would know that he's running. But that being said, I think this interview is important to hear. I would encourage everyone to listen. He has some great insights on the issues of the day and how he would handle certain situations as president of the United States. Now, I know the news always likes to report how the undecided voters are going to swing elections, swing voters, whatever they're termed. Again, understand that I don't think anyone at this point a month out is undecided. I think you pretty much know who you're going to vote for. If there are true undecideds out there, okay, I don't think it's as many as people would like to make you think. And I think it's part of the media's attempt to assist in keeping a stranglehold on a two-party system. We talk about that a little bit in the interview. I don't want to get too deep into that, but let's just say, uh, in my opinion, the media is woefully inadequate and are abdicating their duty to uh, uh, to assess truthfully who's running and freeze out other voices uh, that could contribute to this democracy. I'll just leave it at that. But again, even if you've made up your mind, I would highly recommend this interview because I think as a voter, as a citizen of the country, as a people period, we've lost the ability to have intellectual debate over topics that we disagree on and not make it personal and not grow from it. In fact, the opposite has happened. If you are someone that looks to work with the other side of the aisle, with someone that disagrees with you, you're seen as a traitor or someone that's not loyal or not true to your principles, which is atrocious. And secondly, if you, like most intelligent people do, if you change your mind on an issue when you receive new information 
and you fundamentally change it because the information changes your view of it, you're seen as also weak and a flip-flopper and, and, and the like. And you know what I mean. I'm not talking about changing an opinion because you stuck your finger up and then the winds change. I'm talking about fundamentally changing your opinion on something because the information you received or you received new information that you didn't have before, which caused you intellectually to go, I can't support this position anymore because I received new information. That is perceived as a weakness. And I think to the point now where when people do change their minds on certain things, they just keep it to themselves and continue to uh, agree with whatever party they happen to be with and kind of go with the party line. And I think I know this is a fact and I know that the people reject it outright because of the low ratings that Congress gets as far as approval. So it's pretty obvious that what's happening now is not working with the majority of American people, yet we still continue to vote for incumbents. But again, when the stacked when the deck is stacked against independent candidates, it makes it almost impossible for uh, an independent candidate to gain any traction. But again, that being said, I hope you listen to this interview, and I hope you listen to the interview I'm going to be conducting with Green Party Vice Presidential Candidate Angela Walker uh, soon, which will be also put up. Uh, if you share my episodes of previous podcasts. I really appreciate it if you've never done it before. And if you only do it one time, I would hope you would do these next two episodes uh, with Mr. Howard and Miss Walker. I think it's important for people to start to get into the habit of listening to people with opposing viewpoints, with differing opinions, with other ideas about the issues of the day, because that makes us grow as people. That makes us intellectually better and it makes us strive to be better. So I would hope that uh, you would get past whatever partisan state that you may happen to be in personally and open your ears and your mind to other viewpoints and see if there's something of value there. Mr. Howard had a lot of uh, interesting things to say about the issues of the day. And look, you may agree with some of them. You may agree with none of them. You may agree with all of them. You may disagree with all of them. That frankly doesn't matter to me. What matters to me more is that you listen and take in what he's saying and absorb that, whether you agree or not, and continue to do that with other people that don't share the same viewpoint that you do. That's the only way we're going to move this country in any kind of direction forward with any kind of substantial impact. So again, I hope you enjoyed this interview. Please share it on your social media and please just think about anything you hear uh, out of opposing viewpoints and, and incorporate that into what your thoughts are on the issues of the day. President, and uh, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Frank. I really appreciate the time. All right. So I wanted to get started kind of a little bit with your background before we get into kind of why you wanted to run. So what is your background um, that kind of led you where you are now? Uh, sure. My background is almost exclusively investments. I've been in the uh, wealth management business since I was about 26 years old, but pretty much finance uh, across the board. Came out of school with a bachelor's and a master's and then um, I've been working in the banking community uh, on the private bank side, wealth management ever since, for the most part, um, and worked my way up to chief investment officer for a bank up in Massachusetts uh, a few years ago and eventually decided we were going to move down to Florida. Uh, so I've been in Florida the last couple of years uh, with the wife and two young girls. Right. And uh, yeah, my wife was excited to hear you're from Massachusetts. She's from uh, Taunton, Mass. What part of Mass were you from? Oh, okay. I'm from uh, Lakeville, Mass originally, but I went to high school in Taunton. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, she'll be excited to hear that. Yeah, she grew up there. 
and then moved down to Florida to go to law school. So, uh, no, she was okay. excited to hear that you're from Mass. Um, she went. She came here to Florida. Actually, that's why she ended up down here. She went to Barry in in Orlando, Florida. Graduated right. there. Yeah, it's been eleven years since she's graduated. So yeah, so that's. Uh, she was very excited to hear you from Mass. So, um, did you have you held any political office previous to your run of president, either Massachusetts or in Florida? No, I've never run for anything before. I've always been kind of a political junkie. Uh, you know, I started a political blog when I was like thirty, and ran that for off and on for ten years or so um, until I had a family and started having other responsibilities. And um, just decided about a year and a half ago that I wanted to run. I, I've basically been disappointed in the choices in the general election for years, uh, last one being Hillary and Donald Trump, obviously. So I, I thought voters could use uh, a more centrist voice, an independent voice, and just more choices in general than you know your standard duopoly, you know, the Democrat, Republican candidates. Yeah, and that's why I really wanted to talk to you, and I'm glad you reached out to, to respond because it's been something I've talked about on the podcast uh, I come from it. I'm a registered independent. Uh, I probably lean maybe more libertarian, maybe slightly right of center. But uh, I, I agree with you. And I've been disappointed in the fact of only having two choices and uh, basically trying to pick the lesser of two evils, which I think we deserve better than that. Uh, so it was good to hear. Where would you have lied politically before this? Where, you know, Is it something where you look at the best candidate? Was there a party? I know Massachusetts is tr traditionally a liberal state. Uh, they've had conservative governors there as well. But where where would you lie politically before you even thought about running? Well, I voted libertarian in the last two uh, presidential elections. So I voted for Gary Johnson the last two times. Um, so I, I kind of lean a little libertarian. But then, you know, my conservative friends tell me I lean liberal. And my liberal friends tell me I lean conservative. So um, it's kind of a little bit of everything, uh, depending on what the topic is. I'm more fiscally conservative, socially liberal. Uh, with a little liberty bent uh, in there as well, in a more of a realistic manner, I suppose. So I prefer to have small government, um, and the smaller the better, but realistically how you get from, from point A to B is probably what differentiates me from, uh, say, a libertarian candidate, or most libertarian candidates. <clears throat> right. No, and I agree with a lot of that, because I think uh, I, I'm the same way. I agree with you. I'm, I'm basically, I think I'm uh, fiscally conservative, socially more, a little more liberal, but I agree with that. So when, so you voted for Gary Johnson last two times, I actually voted for Gary Johnson myself, uh, the time before last, uh, what do you think you can bring to the table, uh, that is lacking in our current, uh, candidates or the current president, or even if Hillary had one, what do you think you bring that's different? Uh, well, I think I bring a lot that's different. Basically both parties are just catering to their hard factions of the each and their each respective party. So you're Donald Trump's catering to the extreme right and Joe Biden and the rest of the Democrats are catering to the extreme left. And there's really uh, the middle that's been forgotten. Uh, the centrist moderate viewpoint that Rockefeller Republican into blue dog Democrat area where I think the majority of the country really is. It's more, you know, everybody talks about a silent majority and they think it's their side or the other side, but I really think it's the middle. Uh, it's mostly people that are fed up with what's going on in Washington. That's why you see a 19% approval rating for Congress, because they just can't stand uh, the two warring factions. And they're looking for something a little bit more, a little bit more reasonable, a little bit more centrist. And I think I bring that to the table where I'm a little bit of left, a little bit of right, a little bit of libertarian. Um, so I think I'd be better at being able to bring everybody together as opposed to uh, divide and conquer, which seems to be the, the current strategy for uh, the two parties. 
No, I agree. And I wanted to get into kind of your the challenges of running as an independent candidate, because my friends that I speak to that that are politically active, they they're irritated with me. And I always push back because I think there's this perception. And I think the two party system is has really helped keep it powerful is basically if you say I want to vote for a third party candidate, whether it's libertarian, independent, green party, they say, well, you're taking away votes from A or B. And I always respond if your candidate is not strong enough to withstand a third or even a fourth party challenge, then your candidate's not that strong. That's not the other candidate's responsibility to help get your candidate elected by not participating. Is this the kind of pushback you've received at all when, when you talk about that or even talk about independent politics outside of yourself even running? In general, when I uh, voted libertarian in the past or voted non two party candidate in the past, yeah, I've definitely gotten that feedback. You know, if you get uh, part of the pushback I'll give is if they any party gets 5% of the vote, they'll get federal funding. Um, so whether that's Libertarian Party or Green Party or or any of the other uh, smaller parties, they would be able to get federal funding at 5% and get a little bit more of a competitive landscape uh, than what we current, currently see. Uh, but a lot of times you're just seeing, you know, the mainstream media and everybody else just ignores anything other than the far, the top two parties. So if you look at Jorgensen right now, she's on the ballot in all 50 states, uh, but mainstream media effectively blacks her out. I mean, she gets media attention here and there, uh, but not to the same level or, or even remotely close to what she would deserve. And the same is true for Howie Hawkins, who's on the ballot, I think, in 30 states. Um, and sadly, the Democrats have actually tried to kick him off and have, I think, successfully kicked him off in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, two battleground states. So. Uh, for a party that supposedly doesn't want voter suppression, they definitely don't want the Green Party on their ballot. Uh, but the same is true for Republicans. They don't want the Libertarians on the ballot either, uh, whether that's at the at the federal level or at the state level. So, yeah, and that's frustrating. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's an excellent point because I find it very frustrating. I, I do think the United States, it's time for more than two choices, because especially when the two choices you get in a lot of elections are are lacking uh, pretty substantially, in my opinion. I think you, you're really basically choosing, all right, which one do I, you know, like a little bit more than I like the other one, which I think with all the talented people that are out there and it's so divided and polarized, I think there's a lot of talented people that are are hesitant to run because they see the ugliness and the rancor and the and the just the dirty politics. And I know dirty politics, I'm not naive. I know that's not a new thing, but it seems to reach a low in the last couple of cycles that I've even, you know, been like, this is crazy for for the things that you're used to in politics. It's just like you said, it's everybody's in their silos and there's no, you know, you just basically don't listen to any opposing points of view and, and thinks it's worthless. So I it's frustrating that that's the case. And speak because I've asked actually Howie Hawkins and Joe Jurgensen to come on the podcast as well. I'm actually going to speak to uh, to Angela Walker next week because uh, I want to get these these candidates, you guys on here to talk about this, because it's something I am passionate about, because I like I said, I'll vote Democrat, I'll vote Republican, who I think is the best candidate. But if neither one of those candidates are for me, I want to have a real chance to vote for someone that has a real chance to win. I think you kind of explained some of that. kind of want to get into that a little bit. I know Florida is a closed primary state. So as a registered independent, obviously, I don't have a say in which parties, not, you know, who they pick for the nomination. I've chosen to to commit to my independence. But what challenges have you run into? Obviously, I think you said a couple of them, media exposure. I'm sure, obviously, fundraising is a challenge, too. What are the challenges you're trying to overcome to make some kind of dent in with your candidacy? Well, the first challenge is ballot access more than anything else. So 
I am officially a writing candidate in Florida. There's only eight writing candidates in Florida. But if I wanted to be on the actual ballot, I believe I needed 176,000 signatures, which is just a, a ridiculous number. And I don't believe the two parties, the two major parties, have to get to those thresholds because the rules are different. And that's kind of what you see across the board. And I mean, every state's a little bit different. Uh, you know, California is, I think, double the amount of votes, or excuse me, double the amount of signatures to get in order to be on the California ballot. And most of these states have some varying degree of uh, sort of ridiculousness in order to, for an independent candidate or for a small third party candidate to get on the actual ballot. Uh, you, there's some, there's three states I believe where you can just pay a fee, uh, but Oklahoma, for example, it's $35,000. So then you get into fundraising. So do you want to drop $35,000 to get on one state? Uh, and we saw a few people, I think Jade Simmons and Kanye West were able to get on uh, the ballot in Oklahoma. And I think Brock Pierce, I believe his name is, although he's a multimillionaire. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it helps to have uh, a few bucks. Um, so you could, if you had the resources of Kanye West or Brock Pierce or some of these other uh, third party candidates with some funding, you can get reasonably far. I mean, if Kanye was a serious candidate and tried to do this six months before he actually started, he could have got pretty far in terms of getting ballot access. But it's it's your reach and how much um, money you have. And, and he's famous to begin with, so that makes a, a big difference in terms of name exposure and in terms of getting all the signatures that you would otherwise need. But then you, you throw in COVID on top of that, uh, which makes it infinitely more difficult to get signatures um, whether you're getting that, whether you're hiring someone to do that for a petition drive or you're doing it yourself, it makes it a little more challenging in this uh, current year. And, and some of the states have have lessened their the burden of how many signatures you need, but it's you know not nearly um, a reasonable level. Uh, so that's the that's the biggest or the first obstacle that any uh, third party, you know, outside of uh, libertarian green uh, or independent candidate is going to run into. Uh, and then after that, it's media exposure and being able to get your message out um, to anybody, anybody who will listen and gives you the, um, uh, coverage on their podcast like yourself or, you know, mainstream media, things like that. And, you know, the problem is you, you get back to the duopoly and the media doesn't want anything other than those two, their two primary candidates in the race. So they, they don't want green for one side, the other side doesn't want libertarian, uh, but it would be much more beneficial if you had all four of those candidates on the debate stage, for example, um, coming up in uh, Tuesday and had a, a real debate about issues because clearly uh, Joe Jorgensen and Howie Hawkins are hold different views than your standard Republican, your standard Democratic candidate. So it would make for a, a much more interesting debate and a fair debate so people actually have a better choice. Yeah, and no, absolutely. Enough ballot access to get to 270, uh, and that should probably be the rule to get into the debate stage, is if you're on the ballot to get 270 electoral votes, as opposed to the current situation where you have a debate commission, which is made up of Democrats and Republicans, and they make you get to 15% polling, except the polling agencies don't always poll the third or the fourth party. So, oh, let me get into that a little bit because I didn't know that. So that's I definitely want to talk about that. So, what you're saying basically is when uh, 
a pollster is talking to a uh, person to see where they're going to vote, they're just going to basically say the Democrat nominee, the Republican nominee, maybe the Libertarian nominee, and then nothing else, correct? Well, it's typically just the Democrat and Republican. I mean, they're usually automated polls. So they say, you know, press one if you want Joe Biden, press two if you want Donald Trump, and that's it. Uh, there are some polls that will include Joe Jorgensen, the Libertarian, or Howie Hawkins, the Green Party candidate, but it's few and far between. So if your debate threshold is to get to 15%, and let's say, you know, 70% of the polls don't even include your candidate, then that's a pretty tough threshold to get to 15% if no one's even going to uh, poll about you. Yeah, no, definitely. That's uh, definitely, oops, some thunder behind me there. It's definitely <laughs> uh, a tough threshold to hit. And I think intentionally, I think uh, that's a lot of the situation. As far as your campaign, where have you been able to get penetration as far as where you, how many states are you eligible to be a writing candidate? Where are you, where are you standing right now? Uh, we're eligible as a candidate, writing candidate in 25 states right now. Uh, we're waiting on a couple more. Some of them don't want to uh, disclose or certification and until the very end. Uh, but there's about nine states that don't accept any writing candidacy at all. Um, so they just say you're, you're on the ballot or we don't count you. So it doesn't matter if a voter writes in your name or my name or anybody else's that uh, it wouldn't count. So the most you can get it in terms of write-in is about 41 states. Uh, so we're at about 25. We should be at 27. And um, some of the larger states, we're in Florida. We should be up in New York. We're up in Georgia and Illinois uh, and uh, about a bunch of others. And um, how is that in some of the swing states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin? Where, where do you stand there? Uh, Pennsylvania will accept all write-in votes so that we're eligible there. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we are not in Wisconsin um, or Ohio at the moment. Okay. Is that from uh, you haven't hit a threshold or is that a state mandate that you can't do it? It was a, it was a state signature mandate in terms of presidential electors. You've got to get to a certain number of presidential electors that are, uh, say, for Ohio, Ohio residents uh, that we were not able to get to uh, by the deadlines or Wisconsin, for that matter. Same okay. general idea. So they make you... Most states will make you uh, have signatures or names of the presidential electors that are, are on your voting on your behalf uh, per state. But some states want you to just have their name, some are name and address, some are signatures, some are notarized. So, you know, the, some of them, the, each state makes you jump through a different sort of set of hoops um, to get to uh, what they want. Some of them will separate it per district or per county. So uh, if you think you have all the electoral presidential electors that you need and they're all in New Orleans, for example, they won't count it. They've, you've got to sparse that out and, and spread it out across the state. So it's, it's a little bit challenging, uh, but we were able to get on um, you know, more than half the states. Uh, so we're, we're in reasonably good shape. No, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And I want to get into next. So since the debate, we were talking about the debates are going to be coming up on Tuesday night. So obviously, since you're not going to be on that stage, I want to kind of get into some of the issues of the day. Um, obviously, 2020 has been a year like no other uh, in the last century. Uh, so I want to kind of get your thoughts on how you would handle some of the things that uh, that have been going on. Let's start. Let's start with COVID. Uh, sure. That's been the one of the biggest things. So we have this pandemic. What are your thoughts on um how it's been handled, what would you do differently? What, what would President Howard have done in this pandemic? 
Well, I think how it's been done is pretty much a failure in leadership across the board, whether that's Democrats, Republicans, uh, federal level, state level. It, it's been uh, pretty atrocious uh, for the United States of all countries to be handling this uh, as poorly as we have. Uh, it, it doesn't take much to look over the Asian countries who have done this before to know how to do it and how quickly to do it. But basically, you've got a test and you've got a contact trace and you've got to test everybody. And we've had plenty of time to ramp up to get to the point where everyone in the country could be tested that wanted to be tested. Uh, and then you, if you test positive, you quarantine them and you isolate them and you contact trace them. And then, and that's a, not entirely it, but that's 99% of, of the problem. But what we're seeing is politicians don't want a high positive number because it makes them look bad. So especially in Florida, they decided they were just only gonna test people that were symptomatic. Uh, they were gonna really cut down the number of testing across the whole state. And we've seen the numbers go down, but they're not testing nearly the same level that they should work. Whereas they should be doing the exact opposite is test everyone, get as many tests as you can out there. Uh, the same that they're doing, you know, your sports guy, look at what they're doing in the NFL. They test every single athlete every single day. And guess what? It's not a problem in the NFL, uh, at least so far. And when, even if there is, it's a very minimal number relative to the population of the people that they're counting. Uh, if you look at South Korea, for example, they have about two and a half times the population of Florida. So Florida has come down to about 2,500 cases and they're going out of their way not to test people. So bear that in mind. South Korea tests just about everybody um, that they can. They're doing three or 400 cases a day at a population that's two and a half times the size of Florida. Uh, just to give you an example of a country that's doing it, a democratic can country that's doing it correctly uh, versus us that are basically not. We're ignoring it whenever possible. We're not testing people that are sick uh, if we don't have to. And it's just not, it, it's not handled correctly. All you had to do is test everybody, figure out who's positive, quarantine the positive people, contact trace people that have been in contact with them, quarantine them for that, uh, time period, and then you'd be in a lot better shape. Uh, but nobody wants to do that because it's politics. Yeah, and, and it's definitely become political. Let's talk about Florida since you and I are both in Florida. So the governor announced on Friday uh, we're moving to phase three, uh, which is basically we're open for business. Uh, there's no restrictions anymore. Uh, he, he states that uh, they're prepared if there's going to be a spike in cases. Um, here's my thing. And I've talked about it on my podcast. I've only done one COVID podcast cause I was trying to stay away from it because mine is a nonpartisan political and I don't want to go either side. But the thing that I do sympathize with, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican governor, or any governor is the delicate balance between the real issue of the threat of the pandemic versus businesses that are failing and just whole industries that are getting wiped out. And right. frankly, the mental health aspect of it, I think I don't think it's talked about enough, too. I think the mental health of people has been severely affected in different ways due to this, whether it's being having to stay home, whether it's losing their livelihood, whether it's issues with their family, just kind of things that have that have to be taken into account. Obviously, we, we want to save as many lives as we can. But I do think those other things make it complicated outside even the political aspect of it. What are your thoughts about the other things that have kind of come hand in hand with the pandemic other than just the testing and the people that have been positive or unfortunately the amount of deaths? Yeah, I mean, the governors have, a, you're right to say it's a delicate balance between trying to protect the, uh, the citizens and allowing businesses to succeed and not to bury them. 
So I don't necessarily disagree with uh, Ron, Governor DeSantis and reopening the economy, but what I disagree with is he didn't take the steps necessary to get us to this position to where you're, you're reopening it. So I didn't necessarily, I don't agree with the lockdown because you can't really deny or you shouldn't be able to deny businesses the ability to open their open their business. And as long as they're following strict protocols with social distancing and uh, masks, if the business needs a mask, um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily say we should mandate masks, but it should be strongly encouraged. And you should allow, say, Lowe's, Home Depot, all these types of businesses to if they want you to have a mask in the store, you got to wear a mask. But I, I think th these governors are in a, a tough spot where they don't want their small businesses to fail. And, that, and we're seeing that in a lot of spots where, especially the Northeast, where you're not allowing the restaurants to reopen at 100% and the weather is starting to turn. So they're going to be in a tough spot. And the federal government is not providing the, the stimulus that they need to. It's not targeted correctly to where you know, they, it was basically a government mandated shutdown, government mandated recession, and they threw a bunch of money at the problem, but it helped some people and didn't help others and helped some people more. And it was just a, a mess from the start. So basically what I'd say is go ahead and reopen the business as long as you're testing everybody, as long as you're contact tracing. But if you're not going to bother with all of that, you're just, it's a recipe for disaster. So in Florida, yeah, everything's reopened. Uh, you know, we were out uh, this past weekend, and we saw much higher foot traffic in restaurants and, and the whatnot. And it's most likely going to lead to a very high spike in COVID, whether they we know it or not, because they might not know it because they might not test for it. Uh, but it's more likely than not, the more you reopen, the more it's going to spread. And it was never down to, a, a you know, the R not the the multiplier of the virus was never down below one in Florida. So it's likely to continue spreading because we never put ourselves in a position where where we can reopen the economy and succeed. Yeah, and that's kind of the complicated issue there. All right, let's kind of move to uh, the next issue I want to talk about. So obviously, this the, probably the, the largest story, would, which would have been the largest story in any other year uh, outside of COVID is kind of the racial unrest. Uh, so you've had the murders of George Floyd, of, of Breonna Taylor, of Jacob Blake, uh, Ahmaud Arbery. So this has kind of come to a head. And I think COVID has uh, in some way been an indirect factor, obviously, with people in the situations that they're in. I think it's kind of almost seeded the social unrest, but it's we're, at a, we're coming to a head where I think we've seen and then the polarization doesn't help either, where, you know, you have people calling for defunding of the police. Uh, to getting rid of police to, to zones like in, in, in what you had in Seattle and what you have going on in Portland, Oregon, uh, just flashpoints of violence and rioting and looting. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And what, what do you think the government should be doing that they're not doing? And, and what is your thoughts on the situation that's going on? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, <clears throat> especially in some of these city, cities like Portland, Seattle, you know, Kenosha, uh, I think it was Rochester was the latest one where you've seen a lot more social unrest. It seems that uh, the police don't, or the, I should say the politicians don't really get a, a strong handle on it and don't give the police the cover that they need or the support they need right away. Uh, you can see that you, you clearly need the National Guard right away in, in most of these cases. And you could see from, I think it was Kenosha, they waited three or four days before they decided uh, until after the Rittenhouse shooting, uh, before they decided, hey, well, I guess we should, you know, 
crack down a little bit and, and get rid of the violence, the looting and, and everything else. So I think the, the left, the Democrats in general, have condoned it to some extent. I, I think they needed to draw a, cl a clearer line between nonviolent protests are fine and the majority of these protests are nonviolent and they're peaceful protests and we're, we're peacefully protesting the murders of George Floyd and uh, Ahmaud Arbery and all the other, um, the treatment of, of the African-American community and the Hispanic community over the years. That's in that window that that's what you should be promoting and should be acceptable, accepting of. But what happened is you had you, you're always going to have violence, looting, uh, things like that. If you've got if you know the police are sitting there with the with the peaceful protesters, relatively peaceful protesters, the other side of town is going to have rioting and looting because they know that the police are on the other are handling the protesters. So. It, it, that element is always going to come up, but the the politicians, that's why I say the politicians needed to bring out reinforcements. And every time that they have brought reinforcements, like the guard, the unrest has settled down a little bit, at least the violent aspects of it. Uh, so that's one side of it. Um, but they, you know, they should always be advocating for peaceful protests. That's the hallmark of our democracy. Uh, and that's that. And it's a it's a just cause that they need to uh, keep a better focus on, but instead now the focus is law and order. That's the narrative of Donald Trump, and you're, you're going right into his narrative if you condone or ignore some of the violence that's been going on. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I agree, I think, and I think Joe Biden kind of realized that when his numbers kind of dipped a little bit, because he was kind exactly of silent <laughs> on it. Yeah, and once he realized that, then he started to vocally, and you even see commercials now that I saw today, specifically denouncing violence. So, yeah, like I said, I think that was a about, I think it was early September, like right yeah. before Labor Day, and it was a good month too late. Yeah. Uh, to, in his defense, he doesn't run anything. He's a candidate, and he's not in charge of anything. But, you know, he's a, the de facto leader of the Democratic Party. He should have come out uh, with a stronger message much sooner. And and speaking with police violence uh, against people of color or, or or the or the issue that's been going on for a long time, what would you do? What are your thoughts about that? As far as do you think there needs to be sweeping police reform? What do you think the issue is, or what do you think you would do about what this issue seems to be? Because I and honestly, like I said, I try to take a pragmatic, you know, fair approach, and each case is different. Whether it's the Breonna Taylor case, Jacob Blake, any one of these cases, but even just looking at it objectively, there seems to be a disturbing trend where people of color or minorities seem to have worse outcomes than non-minorities. Not to say that white people have never been shot and killed, but it seems to me that I've seen armed white people threatening with guns, and they end up being arrested. Which, which is what they should be arrested, going to jail, going on trial, where unfortunately you see a lot of minorities having a very different result. What are your thoughts about that? Or what do you think needs to be done to kind of change that perception or reality or however you see it? Well, I think what you see is, uh, you know, the black community and the Hispanic community are afraid of the police and the police are afraid of the black and Hispanic community. And when you have a situation like that, you tend to make irrational decisions and you see things that aren't necessarily there. So if I get pulled over, um, you know, my reaction and the police officer's reaction it might be entirely different than if uh, an African-American person gets pulled over because the police have a perception, rightly or wrongly, and, and the African-American individual might have a perception of the police, rightly or wrongly, and then that tends to lead to bad outcomes uh, more often than not. 
Um, but there are ways to to fix this. I think you can. Number one, you sh the police need to be wearing body cameras and they should need to be on at all times. So the Brianna Taylor case, as far as I understand it, does not have video evidence. Um, and there's a variety of different cases that, uh, for whatever reason, the body cameras are not on or the police officer didn't have one or what have you. Uh, but if you, if you mandate that and then put it to a third party so that the police are not in charge of deciding what gets released and uh, what the you know, cutting it or editing it or anything like that. So you've got the full version. Then I think you'll have better outcomes because you'll have, you'll be able to weed out some of the bad police officers where there are some and protect the ones that are good. Uh, so that, you know, if there's not a video evidence and maybe the cop was in the, in the right on a particular situation, the video should be able to, to bear that out. Uh, but you, you do need police reform. I mean, you can see the way police are handling certain aspects of the protests, um, and it's not it's not uh, the best tactics, I would say, uh, by and large, at least. I mean, it's hard to tell because you've got a uh, you know, liberal narrative on one set of channels saying one thing, and you've got the conservative narrative on Republican channels or Fox, and et cetera, telling you the other thing. So you kind of have to read between the lines to figure out everything that's really going on. And is this a pocket of protests and violence or is this more widespread? Uh, but there's other things you can do. You can ban no-knock warrants for starters. I believe they have banned that in uh, Kentucky after the Breonna Taylor case, but that should be banned uh, nationwide. Uh, there's another issue of qualified immunity. Uh, that should be much more limited than it currently is. Uh, I think the Supreme Court will look at that at some point, and I know the, the Libertarian Party would like to end qualified immunity, uh, but it does exist for a variety of reasons, but right now it's on the complete other spectrum where there's complete protection for police officers if they're in the wrong. So I think you need to revisit that, and I think the courts are revisiting qualified immunity to make it a little more limited uh, to some extent. They won't end it. Um, I believe Rand Paul's got a a bill in Congress, but they're not even touching it. So if you come to the if if you come to Congress with something a little more passable that you can get the other side to work on and work with you, then I think that would make progress in that direction. I think the, part of the problem is since we have extreme left and extreme right in Washington, you have politicians that come up with this um, whatever bill, whatever cause they're working on, and they know it's never going to pass because they don't really want to work with the other side. And whether that's uh, whether that's the qualified immunity or it's Medicare for all or <clears throat> um, minimum wages, things like that, there's no bipartisan conversation whatsoever. It's people standing on one end of the sideline or the other and screaming about what their opinion is and what they think is the correct solution but they're all theoretical. They don't actually pass anything. They don't work with the other side to get it done. And, and I think police reform is the same thing. So you're, they're not gonna make any movement on qualified immunity because they don't wanna talk to each other. They're probably not gonna make any movement on no-knock warrants uh, nationwide anyway, uh, because they're, they're just not working together. And I think that was part of the, part of my candidacy was to bring everybody back together and try to get these two sides to work, figure out what minimal agreement you have on a particular topic and go from there and try to get some level of 
uh, bipartisan agreement, even if it's uh, at the margins, but to do something rather than this divide and conquer strategy that we're seeing across the country and we're just getting further and further apart from each other. No, absolutely. I agree. And I think, unfortunately, which is why you see a, you know, 19% or whatever the low approval rating of Congress is, I, I think there is a perception and I think that perception is not false, that there is not any incentive for the two sides to agree on anything. Uh, unfortunately, it seems to be the MO is we cater to our base and that keeps us in office. And I think, unfortunately, that's what's been going on for a long time. You said it correctly, the staying in office, that's their number one priority is to stay elected and stay in office and keep the power. Everything else is secondary, no matter what they tell you. Yeah, and it's frustrating because as a voter, I mean, I've, I've gone back and forth when, we, when I talk about term limits. It, it, I've, I've literally flipped that position 50 times probably because on, on a certain day, I'm going to be like, we should have term limits. You know, people need to go. This was never, it was never meant to be at the start of the country, a lifetime position. You were supposed to come in as a public servant you know, serve and then get back to the private sector or do whatever it is you did before you went into into the government. But then the other part of me says, if people are doing a great job and the voters want them to stay, they should be able to stay. So I've always vacillated back and forth. But unfortunately, now I'm more of a proponent of it because I think these people just don't want to leave. They don't want to leave and they don't want to that the, the younger people or the next set of people with maybe different ideas than the past really try to get things done. Like you said, even agree at the margins, forget about even wholesale changes. They can't even agree to anything minimal to kind of move any kind of agenda forward. And like I said, because it's not really in their best interest to do so. Right. And that's one of the, the pieces of my platform is term limits, because I think it leads to complacency, arrogance and corruption more than anything else. And, and you're seeing that. Uh, you can take you know, the freshman congressmen that are much more idealistic and much more willing to work with the other side, but then they get to Congress and they see that nothing gets done. Um, you know, you have actually AOC, even though I don't necessarily agree with her on much of anything, um, she was willing to work with Ted Cruz uh, on some bipartisan legislation because she's, she's new, she's willing to work uh, with people from the other side of the aisle. And John McCain used to be like that. Um, and, and Joe Biden was like that to some extent, um, whether he is now, I don't know, but there, there used to be at least some level of bipartisanship. Uh, but the longer these people stay in office, the, the less likely they are to do it and they don't care. They, they really just want to stay in office and get uh, heads of committees and get high enough up on the food chain to be in power. So it's just it's a sad state of affairs is where we're at. And. Hopefully, you know, we can open it up a little bit to other voices and other candidates as we're as we move along. Yeah. And that's the part that 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 saddens me as a voter, because I, I always try to be an advocate for for participation in the process. And and on my podcast in the past, I, I call out voters, including myself, too, where we're not as vigilant um, as voters in holding these people accountable. We elect reelect incumbents over and over again. But I do understand when I talk to people that don't vote, I get when they tell me what difference does it make? If I vote, nothing changes. They're all the same. And it's hard for me to rebut that argument. And it really is. And I and I and what I say is, but you can't use that as an excuse not to participate. Like that's gotta be more of the reason why you should participate and support other candidates outside of the box because that's how we change things. You can't just go, well, my vote doesn't count. You can't do that. You can't just check out. Right. And and uh, there was a hundred million people that didn't vote in the last election. 
So of registered voter or well of eligible voters. And then you had another seven million or so voted for third party or independent candidates. So there's really a, a smaller subset of people that actually voted for Democrats or Republicans. You've got this whole group that's um, just disenfranchised or just doesn't want to go anywhere near the two major parties. And that's a majority, hundred, you know, well, close to a majority. If you had to add up the Democrats and Republicans, I think you're about 125 million and you're maybe 107 million either didn't vote or voted third party or, or independent in the last election. Yeah, and that's the thing that people don't understand. If they of those 107 million understood the actual power they have, if they really exercise that one right to vote to really push for, and if it's a Democrat or Republican, that's the best. That's fine. But if there's a third party out there or someone that could really change the country in a positive way, they don't understand that they could they could affect the outcome and get those people in there if they really participated. So that's the frustrating part when you're trying to convince people to do that. And I know that that argument is hard. Even even now, more than ever, it's hard to kind of make that case. I wanted to get into the Supreme Court since this just uh, unfortunately came up with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Obviously, President Trump nominated um, uh, Amy Comey Barrett uh, on Saturday or yesterday. So what are your thoughts on the Supreme Court? Because I've had I did a podcast on the hypocrisy, speaking of hypocrisy, about the Merrick Garland nomination back in 2016, mm-hmm. last term of Obama. My thought, and it's very simple, I don't care about protocols or customs. You're president for four years. You're not president for three years and six months or three years and eight months. If you are in office and a vacancy comes, you put the vac- you put up a nominee. The Senate has the advising consent. They can either vote it up or down. I was very angry that Merrick Garland wasn't even heard. If they wanted to vote him down, that was fine. And now fast forward four years later, and I call it in my in my podcast two years ago, if the same thing happens, watch everybody flip and go, okay, well, now it's a little bit different and we're going to put a nominee through. And, and, I, and I, sure, I assure you, this will be the fastest confirmation hearing in the history of the world. And well, on one hand, I, I'm okay with it because my position is consistent. Trump is the president. He puts up the nominee, the Senate up or down. So that doesn't change. But the hypocrisy of specifically Mitch McConnell just enrages me. And his qualifier now is, well, it's different now because both parties have the presidency and the Senate. So I'm like, that's not even a worthy argument to me. What are your your thoughts about that? I pretty much agree with that. I mean, he's full of crap. Um, The yeah, I was a little annoyed four years ago. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't an Obama voter in 2012. But, you know, he guy died and he's got the right to put somebody up. He puts up Garland nine months before um, the end of his term and they wouldn't even they wouldn't even hear it. So that was a little annoying. Annoying. So I, for this, I, I probably would be in the Lisa Murkowski camp where I'd say fair is fair. Don't don't vote until uh, the next president on January 21st. Um, but, you know, otherwise, I agree with you that if the president has a four year term. He should have the right to nominate whoever he wants and have the Senate uh, vote up or down. Um, but considering the hypocrisy of what uh, the Republicans did in four years ago, I think fair is fair. Um, on the other hand, Democrats have completely flipped as well. So they demanded that uh, Merrick Garland be voted on. And now they're saying, well, nobody should be voted on until next year, next term. So they both both sides have flipped the complete 180s to the position that they had at, uh, for 2016. Agree. That's a great point. And, and the Democrat, yeah, and I don't definitely hold the Democrats. I, I specifically did Mitch McConnell because he was in the position to really block that nominee in 2016. But you're absolutely right. 
the Democrats. And this was my point, because now you've set a bad precedent. So now the now basically right. what's going to happen in any election, you know, no, fortunately, this doesn't happen too often. It's, it's kind of weird that it's happened twice in the last four years, but I don't think that's going to be the norm. Thank goodness. But again, this just is another point of why I feel other parties need to be represented in government, because this is this is foolishness. Like this is like a common sense thing to me. Trump is still the president. The Senate should vote up or down this. Well, we're not going to hear it. What, what do you mean? Hear it? So you're basically just abdicating your responsibility. Like I said, if you would have voted Barry Garland down, I would have had no problem with that. I mean, I could have criticized maybe why you did, but I would have said you had the right to do that. I may have not agreed with it, but to not even hear the nominee at all. And then, like you said, flip it around now. And, oh, we're going to hear it and we're going to confirm. And like I said, I, I, I think they're starting our October 12th. I guarantee you she'll be confirmed before the before Halloween. Yeah, she probably will. third. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fast tracked unless something comes out crazy. I think it's going to be fast track. Which okay, but again, it's just part of the the issue that I have now. As far as uh, your position, like if you had to appoint a, a nominee, where where would you be looking? What type of judge would you be looking for uh, in your administration if you were had the opportunity to appoint a nominee for the Supreme Court? Well, much like my candidacy, I would look for someone who's in the centrist moderate lane uh, and not get someone. Uh, extremely conservative or extremely liberal. And you've got, well, I mean, the, Amy Coney Barrett's going to be extremely conservative. I, mean, I think that's a pretty fair statement. However, I don't think the court is going to be as conservative as the Democrats are making it out to be. And I don't think it's going to be as conservative as the Republicans hope it's going to be right now. If you look at the breakdown of the court, it's instead of being six to three, it's really going to be three, three and three. You're going to have three very conservative ju jurists in Thomas, uh, Alito, and Barrett. And then you're going to have three conservatives that are very moderate in Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch. And that's those three are the key because they can side with the liberals, and you've seen Roberts do that already. Uh, and they're more reasonable uh, or more in line with my thinking, especially uh, the Chief Justice Roberts is probably a lot closer to where I would be where you can, <clears throat> if you are a little on the conservative side, you can go to the liberal side if you, if there's a reasonable argument um, and the court, uh, the court case presents itself as such. So you're going to see the ACA come up uh, in early November, uh, but it's very unlikely that they throw the entire ACA out because of uh, just by throwing out the constitutional mandate of requirement or the requirement mandate within being unconstitutional. So that aspect of ACA being unconstitutional is not all that likely to throw the entire program out. And I think you're going to find that those three moderates are going to move the needle uh, in the direction of keeping ACA so that the, the arguments you hear in the coming weeks of this is all going to blow up uh, is a little bit exaggerated, I believe. I completely agree with that. Uh, I was thinking, I was talking about this with someone the other day. I, I, I completely agree with that. I think I always go back to my favorite, one of my favorite justices, David Souter, uh, who uh, was a constant source of irritation <laughs> to conservatives uh, yes. after they put him on the court, which made him one of my favorite justices, because that's the point. I think if you're aggravating both conservatives and liberals, then I think you're probably doing the right thing. And I think you're doing a good job. You're making decisions based on what the law tells you and how it leads you. And that's going to lead you in different directions, depending on what the case is and what the merits of the law state. So uh, I agree with that. I, I think a lot of it is hyperbole, like everything else. It, you know, it's the sky is falling. 
if she's appointed. I mean, I know the next thing they're going to talk about is ACA, and then obviously it's going to be uh, Roe v. Wade after that. I'm of the personal opinion that that law is never going to be overturned. That case is never going to be, in my opinion. I know some people disagree with me. I just think in reading the decision, the, the, the issue of privacy in that decision, I think is the, is the key to that. I know there's scientific arguments about you know when life begins, and that's been more on the pro-life side. But I just think at the end of the day, I think to your point, I think those three conservative um, moderate justices, I don't think they're ready to, to take it that far to overturn that decision. That's my thought on that. I could be wrong. I don't think so. Uh, but what are your thoughts on that? Because that's the other thing that they're going to they're going to ask her when she's in her confirmation hearings about her thoughts on abortion. Right. And she would probably, you know, we haven't heard her confirmation hearing yet, but if we were to guess, she'd probably be in the camp of overturning Roe v. Wade. But you also need five votes and they're not likely to get it, even with a six to three generically conservative court. You know, Roe v. Wade has been settled law for 47 years and. The justices that have taken their their seats on the bench in the last few years are just barely older than that. So they don't have any or very little writings about abortion because they don't they're not stupid. They're not going to put themselves and commit themselves to one side or the other, knowing full well that it's a divisive issue and it's been a divisive issue for, for decades now. So you don't have for Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, um, Roberts, really any writings, any kind of opinion too far in one direction or the other on um, pro on abortion. So other than they've said it's settled law and it's not likely to change. I think which what might come up with a conservative court and Barrett has said this herself, where she, I think she said Roe v. Wade was not likely to come up, but federal funding might come up where, for example, Planned Parenthood has federal funding. And the conservatives have been trying to defund Planned Parenthood for uh, you know, a number of years. Right. So that might be up for attention in the you know in the coming court cycle. But you know, bear in mind that Planned Parenthood actually gets the majority of their funding not from federal funding. So they get about two thirds of their funding from other sources and about one third of their funding from federal government. It's about six hundred million dollars. Uh, so if you were to get rid of that. Um, this sort of worst case scenario in that in that area, it's likely that private donations could refund that and take care of that difference. Uh, if you noticed after RBG passed away on Friday, the Democrats raised $100 million within 48 hours. Yes. So if it's that important to the Democrats where they can raise $100 million in 48 hours, I, I would bet that they could raise $600 million in uh, a full year if uh, that federal funding gets overturned for Planned Parenthood. Uh, and the other aspect is you could see some restrictions on abortion from conservative states, uh, but it's typically late-term abortions, which most people won't, they don't, nobody even does late-term abortions anymore, uh, to my knowledge, like third trimester. So, you know, it's not likely to, to move the needle too far. And if you ever get to the point where you overturn Roe v. Wade, it really just goes back to the states. So if it does go back to the states, you're going to in a situation. You'll be in a situation where the conservative states would outlaw and the liberal states would not, and the person with the unwanted pregnancy just drives to the liberal state and and gets it done. So you're really never solving the problem, uh, and that's why I talk about where can you agree on the margins? Where can the pro-choice and the pro-life people meet at the margins, which is you know the need to 
reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies. Uh, I think at the very minimum, you could probably agree on that. Um, how you get how you get to fix it is a different story, but if you focused on adoption, the adoption credit's about $12,000, you could expand that. Uh, if you focus on education and contraceptives, which is another controversial topic for some, uh, but it does reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies. Uh, and we've been able to see that with ACA, actually under the Obama administration, uh, the number of uh, abortions has declined almost every single year uh, because he was able to get that within the, uh, the healthcare budget, the healthcare bill. So I think if your end goal is to reduce the number, you should try to go about it in a different manner as opposed to let's just stack the court with uh, my conservative justices and let's ignore everything that my Republican president does because I know he's going to appoint a pro-life judge. So I'm going to ignore all the personal aspects of his life and all the nonsense that comes out of his mouth um, because he's going to nominate uh, my guy or my woman for the Supreme Court that sides with me on that particular issue. So I, I don't think it's a very good strategy and it obviously hasn't worked in 47 years. So I think you should probably take a different approach if, if your end goal is to reduce the number of um, babies being aborted. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's always been where my thought is at. Cause obviously it's a, it's a deeply personal issue, uh, to the woman who's pregnant. It's a, it's a, it's a religious issue. It's an ethical issue. It's a medical issue. There's so many things that are intertwined with this situation. And that was always my thought, just looking at it. Like I said, try to looking at it pragmatically. It's like really the focus should be on how do we reduce the amount of unwanted pregnancies and get that number as close to zero as we can get it to. Obviously zero will never happen, but if we can at least shoot to try to get as low as possible to make abortion something that is not rarely sought out. Um, I think that's the best we can hope for outside of there being an outright ban. And I think we've seen what's happened in this country when there was a ban on abortion. It was it was it was bad for everyone, for for the mothers, for 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 everything. It was just dangerous. And 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 that was not a situation that I think we want to go back to. But at the end of the day, I understand people's philosophical, religious and and and, and moral issues with it. I get it. And that's why it makes it so complicated. Right. And I wanted to talk, yeah, and then we did domestic. I want to talk about um, foreign policy. So obviously, uh, one of the most important roles of the president is foreign policy. So what are your thoughts about things that are going on around the world? Obviously, the biggest thing that always gets talked about is terrorism and and kind of our relationships around the world, whether it's Iran, North Korea. Obviously, President Trump's dealings with both Iran and North Korea have been criticized, lauded, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. Let's start with North Korea. So obviously, Trump met with Kim Jong-un, and they had a couple of summits. It doesn't seem that a lot has come out of that. Uh, I think you can make an argument, though, that, you know, reaching out to uh, outlaw regimes sometimes may have some value, like Nixon did with China. There may be some value here. What are your thoughts on that? How would you deal with a, a nation like North Korea? Yeah, I think generally outreach to a, a country like North Korea is positive. I, I think where they erred is putting the president front and center for that. I think you can, you're giving North Korea a huge advantage in PR and domestically by putting the president in the DMZ, coming all the way out there to meet with Kim Jong-un and raising the level of Kim Jong-un in terms of his prestige across the world, because we've got the American president, the global superpower, uh, meeting one-on-one -on -one with uh, this sort of rogue dictator, if you will. But I think having outreach in general is good. And, you know, 
our people the, or the government's people should have been talking to his and maybe they could come up with some sort of agreement. Uh, one of the things that upsets the North Koreans is that we have run military exercises on their border every single year, I think, if yeah. not more frequently, and that really aggravates them. Uh, what aggravates us, obviously, is that they're building nuclear weapons and letting their people starve to death. So, you know, it's you could try to get to some agreement by not doing the military exercises. It doesn't really benefit the U.S. all that much um, to practice, basically, and show them how powerful we are. I mean, I think it's pretty implied um, that, you know, we could take out any country we wanted to if need be. So I don't really find the strategy of showing how fast our airplanes go and all this other nonsense around their, the borders um, and how dominating we are it really has the same benefit uh, that they think it does. So it really just aggravates the regime um, and that maybe makes them go a little faster with their nuclear weapons or you know just act not in the, the best interest of uh, the rest of the, the region and the rest of the globe. So yes, I agree they should be talking to the North Koreans. I don't think you should put the president out there front and center no matter who the president is. Um, but yeah, try to talk to them and come up with some agreement. Um, but they're not a, they're not the threat that some of these other countries are. I mean, they don't have, they don't have a lot of exports. They have some level of nuclear weapons, but it's not ICBMs. They, they can't get anywhere near the United States right now. Uh, but it is important to keep track of them to make sure that they don't reach that type of technology. Uh, to where they can threaten Hawaii or they can threaten Alaska or they can threaten some other uh, peripheral area of the country. No, agreed. And, and and moving on to Iran. So Iran, I think, is more of a uh, a threat in the sense that they've uh, basically have been funding or uh, assisting terrorist organizations in other countries, whether it's Hamas or Hezbollah, uh, to really sow kind of chaos in the Middle East. And uh, I know Obama had the the nuclear deal that Trump pulled out of. What would you think, uh, what would you do? How would you handle a, a country like Iran that has been outwardly hostile as, as, a, as and it relates not even just to the United States, just their, their goal in kind of sowing chaos in the Middle East uh, to meet their ends? Well, I would tend to agree with President Trump in this general area. I would have pulled out of the nuclear deal. I think it's, it's nonsense. They're going to build nuclear weapons one way or the other. And um, for us to give them everything that we gave them for their agreement to not build nukes, I think was, was naive. Uh, you're right, they are a, a very hostile player in the region, and I think you need to come down on them strong without, not that you necessarily have to commit U.S. troops or, you know, bomb their country or anything, but economically you can come down strong, which is what the administration has done, um, and pulling out of the nuclear deal. And I think you need to force Iran to be a reasonable player in the global market, especially considering they control the Strait of Hermes to some extent and the flow of oil in and out of the region. So for them to be basically like a rogue enterprise where they're bombing you know, ships and from different countries to get attention for really for no other reason than to get attention uh, is just nonsense. And you've, you've got to treat them like a petulant child that they are. Um, and I think what the administration has done by and large is in the right direction. Uh, you've got to come down a little bit more strong than what we saw from the Obama administration. 
uh, because they're not they're not going to play nice. Um, and I, I think sometimes the Obama administration tried to um, try to think that everyone was going to be our friend and everyone was going to um, to be like a democratic society and everything's you know all uh, roses and flowers and everything's great. But I think you've got a lot of rogue countries with rogue governments and dictators and they have no other desire than to see the U.S. fail and it cause pain to the United States and to a lot of the other countries in the region, Israel, for example, Iran, uh, would like Israel wiped off the map. So you've got to treat some of these countries with, um, you know, a jaundiced eye and not let them walk all over you. Um, so that goes for Russia, China, in, um, Iran, and North Korea, among others. No, agreed. And, and and the last country I want to talk about specifically, because this is one that uh, as a just as a watcher of this is, is I think, another complicated issue, uh, Afghanistan. So from the beginning of Trump's campaign in 2016, he ran on. We've been sitting in Afghanistan for 20 years fighting an endless war, and I want to draw down troops. Uh, he's made good on that, and they're trying to do that. I've been of the opinion that uh, presidents before him have tried to do that. I think uh, it's one of those things is when you're running for president, you have all these goals that you have. And then when you actually sit in the seat, you realize when you hear from intelligence, when you hear from the military, you realize that it's not as simple as you think it is. And I think Afghanistan has been one of those situations because I think the philosophy has always been even post 9-11, especially post 9-11 is if we don't fight the battle there, they're going to bring the battle back to us just like they did in 9-11. Now, I think there's a lot of merit to that argument, but I also do agree that at some point, we're going to have to make a decision to draw down. Now, should it be zero? Should it be special forces there? I don't I don't know what that answer is, but I think it's easy to say, let's get out of there until you actually have to pull the trigger. And every single president since George W. Bush has been not doing that. They've been saying they're going to do it and have not pulled all the way out for what I think are good reasons. But again, it's been 20 years. How long do we do it? Is it perpetual? What are your thoughts about the situation specifically in Afghanistan? Well, I think Afghanistan is similar to our philosophy, the government's philosophy in a lot of different countries where they put troops in a country and they never leave. And I think Afghanistan is very much like that. We're in about 150 countries right now militarily, and there's only 197 countries in the world. So my general belief would be to draw that down uh, dramatically over you know, the course of a number of years. We don't need to be in 150 countries. Uh, we probably do not need to be in Afghanistan specifically. We need to be in the region, I would argue, uh, for any conflict that comes up. Uh, but we don't necessarily need to be in Afghanistan. They are, I, I, don't, I don't typically, I don't really subscribe to they're going to bring the fight to us. Uh, it's, it's quite a big difference to fight someone who's standing in front of you as opposed to getting on a plane and traveling to the other side of the world because you're aggravated about something that the U.S. government did. Um, yes, that happened in 9-11, but it hasn't happened since, and it's been uh, 19 years. So, And you've got to have the resources, and I think our controls are a lot stronger than they used to be in terms of that ever being happening again. We've got a lot better uh, systems in place to see it coming. So, and, and there's there's targets, if you want to hit Americans, there's targets all over the place because we're in so many different countries. So even if we pulled out of Afghanistan, we're still in Syria, we're still in, you know, a lot of different areas around the world. We're helping Saudi Arabia and Yemen, um, which I don't agree with either, but 
you know, I think in general, we, we should be able to get out of Afghanistan. Like you said, we've been there for about 20 years. And at some point, we've got to let these countries decide for themselves what they want and create their own system of government and just basically get out of the way. So you know, I'm generally non-intervention in terms of my overall philosophy and militarily, uh, but I'm not naive either. So I don't think we should get out of every single country and just hide and you know be fully armed and just be in the United States. We have NATO allies that need our support. Uh, and we need to be in certain geographic locations in case something does come up uh, where there are rogue players in the world, Russia and China, like I was mentioning. And if we completely withdraw from all places in the world and become isolationists, then you'll see Russia and China just spread their their authoritarian style uh, across the rest of the, the planet. So I, no. I think we need to have some balance in there. Right. And that's going to be my next question. I agree with that situation. So what would you do? What do you think the best uh, way to handle countries around the world? Like you said, not to be an isolationist, but again, not to intervene when it's not necessary, just just to be kind of because I almost equated to like kind of being that good angel on a lot of nations shoulders, kind of whispering in their ear. Hey, this probably is probably the better way to do it and hope that they would take our counsel, because like you said, I think if we withdraw completely back to the North Korea argument, because it's it. North Korea has been isolated forever and that hasn't worked. And I think Trump, I don't think he succeeded fully, but I get the spirit of what he was trying to do to aggressively posture with him and then try to meet with him. But like I said, we can argue if there was any results of that or not. But I think part of that is good. But again, with the rest of the world, where is that balance between butting out, but uh, at least being that influence that we can be? And how could we do that without having to be militarily or through, you know, troops and soldiers and, and people, unfortunately, losing their lives. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis, but in general, we should be very, very reluctant to commit troops or military assets to a lot of these situations. A, a lot of these countries will come to us and want our military support. So, like I mentioned, Saudi Arabia came to us for Yemen. They wanted to invade Yemen, and they needed military, our military assets and our surveillance and our systems and our intelligence to be able to do it more effectively. That's something we shouldn't be involved in, uh, whether we agree with one side or the other, because what it does is it taints our, it taints us in terms of our relationship with Saudi Arabia, so they can go and kill a journalist and in another country, no less, and then we just look the other way uh, because we're way too involved with what they're doing. Uh, not necessarily their conflict with Yemen, but their, you know, the control of oil and everything that goes with that. And every country, you know, like I said, it's case by case, but in general, we should not be committing military assets to areas where where it's not necessary. And it's most of the time it's not necessary. Uh, if you've got genocide happening in, in a particular location and that's something we can do something about it, then perhaps uh, if you've got, but otherwise, you know, you, you really got to let other countries uh, fend for themselves and, um, or at least control their own their own government, not put different people in place that are American approved. But like I said, we should be defending our NATO allies um, uh, because like there's some countries that Russia would just run right through uh, if we're not defending them. There's countries in uh, Southeast Asia uh, that we need to defend as well. Uh, and that's been a pact that's been around for decades. So like I said, it depends on the it depends on the country, it depends on the case, but 
by and large, I would be a non-interventionist. All right. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that outlook. Now, before we wrap up here, I want to uh, give you the opportunity in the platform, because like I said, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the challenges uh, of a third party or an independent candidate. And I, and I want to advocate for, for, for people like you that really want to help the country. And I appreciate the fact that you want to throw your hat in the ring and that you're putting yourself out there because I know there's a lot of it that's challenging. So I, I appreciate that personally. Um, what uh, what what would you like or what do you need from us voters? What would help you the most? to try to get you that exposure, anything that we can do to help uh, accentuate your candidacy to, to at least accelerate something. Cause I know, and I know just being honest, I know this is a situation that this is kind of a long game. And I know uh, that's why I think there's a lot of struggle for independent candidates. I mean, I go all the way back to when I was a child in 1980, I remember the independent candidate, John Anderson running when Reagan was running against Carter all the way back then. And, and, and those challenges haven't changed in 40 years. So, and I know this is a game where we, we have to have people with commitment to maybe get 10% this time and 12% next time and 15% the next time. What is it that we can do that you think would really help accelerate the real possibility of an actual third party candidate making a difference in a campaign? The number one thing is media attention more than anything else. Uh, you've, if you presented the third, the fourth, the fifth party candidate on the same playing field as the Democrat and Republican, I think they would have a fair shot. If you put Joe Jorgensen on Fox and MSNBC and CNN and you gave her the coverage that you give the two major candidates, and it, same for Howie Hawkins, if you gave him that coverage or if you gave me that coverage or any of the other candidates, then voters would know that there's more than two choices and they would the polls would change dramatically if there was fair media coverage across the board for the candidates. Uh, but you're not seeing that. You see uh, more or less a media blackout, at least from the mainstream levels, to get anything past the first two parties. Uh, but that's the number one thing. It's it's name recognition, and you're not and name recognition across the country, across every state, and you, you need national media coverage to get that far. Uh, you can piece it together with local coverage, but you've got to You'd have to be doing local coverage in 50 different states uh, with, you know, dozens of interviews on a, on a daily basis to, to get to the same level that you can get on a national scale. So and the funding is the other aspect where, you know, I think Joe Biden raised $500 million or something in the last uh, 30 days or the last 60 days, something like that. And, and Trump's right there neck and neck with him. Uh, I think he was a little behind this quarter. He was a little ahead the quarter before. And the... So that's the other aspect is in order to get to be on the ballot in 50 states and then get your message out, not only the media attention, but you have to be able to run advertisements and run on uh, social media and run on the, the national networks. You need hundreds of millions of dollars in order to, to get to that. So some, I mean, there's with the internet and with social media, there's been candidates like Bernie Sanders, even though he was part of Democrats, although he was independent for a while. He's been able to demonstrate that you can build a network of grassroots um, fundraising and get to reasonably high numbers. I mean, he still wasn't able to get the nomination, uh, but he was able to raise a, a good amount of money uh, over the course of his two campaigns. <clears throat> so you, you, you've got to be able to create a structure like that and to be able to uh, to get the 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 numbers that you got to get the funding and you got to get the media attention. So I mean, those are your those are your basic aspects, and that it's a big they're both big hurdles. 
Yeah, and I know the media situation is is a is a huge hurdle. Just not even just with that. It's just unfortunately the media I think is is complicit, whether it's intentional or unintentional. I don't know if it's a matter of laziness because it's easier to cover two parties than three or four. I don't know if you know. I don't know if it's just. I, I don't know. It's fear. If if the MSNBC and CNN start covering Howie Hawkins, it's fear that it's going to take away from their candidate. And if the if Fox covers a libertarian too much, it's fear that it's going to take away from theirs. Although you yeah. would think that the liberal networks would cover the libertarian a little bit more, but you know, the libertarian tends to to slide a little left in some aspects, like you know, like foreign policy, for example, like we were talking about. Uh, so, you know, I think most of the networks want to just stay away because they, they think it'll hurt their guy or their candidate. And which saddens me because the, the media, and, and this is where I think Trump, uh, to give him some credit has been brilliant. I think he's, he's as much as people may say he doesn't tell the truth ever. And a lot of hyperbole, I think when it comes to the media, there's a lot of the things that there's a lot of bases of truth there. And I think, unfortunately, the media has become an advocate instead of an advocate for the people, they've become an advocate for the parties or the candidates they agree with. And that's not what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be looking at everything with that, with that unbiased eye and just reporting it as they see it. And unfortunately they, they're not doing that on either side, left or right. Yeah. I mean, I think you see it a lot more with real journalists at the, at the local and the state levels, uh, you know, your print journalists, I think you have yeah. a lot less bias and a lot more pure, journalism I, I think it gets lost when you get in front of the camera on you know on the main cable networks and it just it, it's it sells better to be on one side or the other they've figured out that ratings go up if you play to your audience and you play to your liberal audience you play to your conservative audience as opposed to being just uh, you know a neutral plain vanilla type of commentator uh, so at some point they figure this out and they just They've just catered to that those extreme elements. Yeah, I think when uh, the media became a, a business and and a, and a very lucrative business, and and unfortunately, that's I agree with you. I think uh, the print journalism, and I and I've ignored it myself. I mean, with the internet, it's hard to, you know, I don't even get my daily paper anymore, and it's something I probably need to do. I mean, going to a, a, an unrelated topic, the Jeffrey Epstein situation, uh, just the tremendous work by the Miami Herald. Uh, basically brought that case back from the dead, literally. Literally, he had gotten away with what he had done with a small jail sentence, which was basically a hotel stay. And they brought that case back by intrepid reporting. So it's 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 it gives me some hope of the media. That's the media that I try to look at because I know there's a lot of good reporters doing really good work and really sure. care about what they're doing. So I wish, unfortunately, that would you know infiltrate the, the television networks the way it used to be because I, I remember a time, I'm old enough, I remember a time where that was their mandate. Their mandate was to report the truth and to expose untruth. And unfortunately, that's just not the case anymore. Yeah, those days are gone. <laughs> gone, unfortunately. Well, it's been great to have you on. Before we, we ended up, though, I want you to, to, to tell everyone where they can find you on social media, anything that you want to put out there to, to, to get people to find you. Sure. Uh, you can find my campaign website at seanhoward2020.com. That's S-H-A-W-N. Uh, it has my, my Twitter handle is Sean Howard 2020 or at Sean Howard 2020. Facebook is Sean Howard 20, uh, but most of them are Sean Howard 2020, whether that's my, my YouTube channel, uh, which has uh, any of the videos that I've done for interviews uh, and things like that. So that's pretty much where you can find me. Uh, Instagram, same thing, Sean Howard 2020. Uh, I mostly use Twitter right now. Um, 
Uh, Parlor, same thing. It's more conservative, but Parlor, I'm at Sean Howard 2020 as well. And the last thing before, because I, I don't want to forget this. I know you said you're on 25 uh, states right now. Is there anything anyone in the states that you're not on can do? Any anything they can, any person they can call, anything they can sign, anything that would help you get on more ballots before the deadlines or have the deadlines passed? Uh, just most of the deadlines have already passed. But basically, the biggest um, the biggest bogey was getting presidential electors and getting notarized signatures for certain states that were not allowed or that. <clears throat> needed them. So at, at this point, uh, we're past uh, the deadlines for just about all of them. All right. And what about your future past the election this year? Um, are you going to be involved in politics going forward? What is what is your plan or you're just taking it one day at a time and kind of focusing on this? Um, I'm focused on this for now, um, but I've been in, I've been on the sidelines of politics, I suppose, for a while. Like I said, I wrote a political blog for about 10 years. Um, so I've always had some sort of uh, desire to be in politics. So I don't know what 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 we'll find out after November third, but um, I'll still probably have something to do with it one way or the other. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and I definitely want to have you back on uh, after the election. Like I said, on whatever means, because I think these conversations are important. I think the the candidates, other than the two parties, are important, and and these discussions hopefully will lead people to get it in their mind that, that that they don't have to just have two choices. I know it's it's tough because it's the system is set up that way, but it's going to take people at the grassroots level to make this work. So I appreciate, like I said, again, I appreciate you putting yourself out there. I know that's not an easy thing to do. So I do appreciate that. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate the time and letting me come on your podcast and talk about this. It's great. Thank you. And you- thank you for listening to the show. If you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts or any other app, please take a moment to rate and review. This is a quick and easy way you can help the show attain a higher profile in searches when people are seeking out new podcasts. Another way you can help raise the profile of the podcast if you enjoyed what you heard or you think a friend might like it is to share the episode on your social media. This is another easy way to help the show reach a wider audience. The podcast is available on the following apps. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and CastBox. The show is also available on both YouTube and Facebook. Episodes can also be downloaded directly from the website at www.letmebendyourear.com. If you want to email the show, the email is bendyourearpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope everyone has a great week.